Hello, listeners. If you haven't filled in our audience survey yet, why not do it now? It will only take a couple of minutes, I promise. Just click the link in the episode description or go to thisstudyshows.com. Thanks. I'm Mariano Hotter. And I'm Dan George. And welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. This week, we're looking at how data science and machine learning are shaping the future of science communication. So I'd like to introduce a third co-host to the show, (gasps) because I think we should see how AI would cope with presenting, well, frankly, with us, actually, Marianne, but with (laughs) presenting this podcast. Okay, sounds great. Uh, How do we do that? Okay, so we're going to use a neural network called InfoKit. It was designed by a machine learning engineer called Adam King. It's a tool that generates text in response to a prompt. So I'm going to give it a few prompts, the kind of thing that I might say to you, Marianne, and you would chip in with something next. Okay, so let's see how it goes. Welcome to our podcast about science communication. My name is Angel. Each week we connect with scientists from all over the world to tell stories about the research they're working on and the science that matters to them. This is a podcast you should definitely subscribe to, and we're excited to have you along for the ride. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that's brilliant. That that's we we honestly didn't know what it was gonna say, but it's clearly a big fan of our podcast. <laughs> and you should all follow and subscribe. <laughs> Come on, guys. Listen to Angel. Um wow, that's that's good. I mean, the only thing that's scary is the kind of relentless automaton nature of her voice, but what she's saying. <laughs> is worryingly all right. Right. (laughs) Should we give it another go? Okay, yeah. Okay, so um, this week we're talking about the future of science communication. Angel? First, let's start by talking about science. What do scientists do? Researchers do science. Scientists are the most qualified people to answer the big questions about the world. And there are, of course, a lot of those big questions. Do you remember why we can't get much done when it's snowing? What is the difference between snow and rain? Why are dolphins so cute? These are the sorts of questions that need answers. The scientist who solves the world's big questions will get respect and money. Well, they you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Struggling grad students, don't worry. Respect and money is coming your way. <laughs> is why a dolphin so cute one of the really actually big questions? Yes. Did it work? How do you feel about um, it, Marianne? I don't know that she's going to win a kind of podcasting award. No. Um, but given that we gave a prompt and a machine gave us what sounded pretty close to a human response that's that's not bad i mean the bottom line is even though angel was only a, a moderately competent co-host <laughs> ai is already woven into our lives isn't it and we rely on it more and more and will do more so in the future and that's true of research and psychom how do you use ai in your lab dan yeah i mean it's it's very much part of part of a laboratory certainly sort of a an electronics laboratory, instrumentation laboratory like ours, you know, I have lots of human intelligence, lots of HI, and I have lots of uh, artificial intelligence. And, and we need H-I. it. HI. HI, yeah. Is that what you call it? HI and AI? Yeah. And HI is just as important as, as AI. Well, it's more important. Human intelligence <laughs> is much more important. 
so yeah, I mean, we we use a lot of AI for data, data reduction. You know, some of the telescopes we work on, um, they're being built now. When they're when they're completely built, they'll collect as much information, as much data in one day as the entire global internet traffic. And that's just one science experiment. So the amount of data... Yeah, I know it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Whoa. Now you see, my little HI human pathetic little brain just can't even (gasps) conceive of the magnitude of that. There is nothing pathetic about your brain. What what is the most (laughs) complex object in the known universe? It's definitely not my brain. Come on. Yeah, it is. It's the human brain. It's the human brain. If you could express the human brain... Yeah. In um, like the total information content of the human brain as a song and download that song, that song yeah. would last for 50,000 trillion, trillion years. That's a big number. That is a big number. But when you've got your telescopes online, they're going to be even more bigger. <laughs> that's a science <laughs> word there. See, that's the extent of my brain. <laughs> bigger. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm worried. Oh, I'm going to be outclassed by a telescope. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the telescope's just taking the data, needs to reduce the data. The thing with artificial intelligence at the minute is it is it can be brilliant at doing one thing, like brilliant, much better than you, much better than me, much better than any human at doing one thing because it's specifically designed for that one thing. Right. But it can't do loads of things. So, you know, mm. the, the deep mind, have you heard of AlphaGo? DeepMind AlphaGo. It, so that is a really complex AI machine. And it learned the most complex game in the world, the, the known world, Go. Um, and it learned Go to expert level in 40 days, four zero days. Yeah. And, and that was from nothing, from a blank slate. But I bet it can't make a good chicken pie. It can't. It can't even play chess. <laughs> so it can play Go, but it can't play chess. It, it Surely is super that's brilliant step, at doing though. one thing. But that's just like, that's step one, right? So yeah, it's yeah. going to be really good at playing all the games. Well, maybe. And then it'll I don't go, know. I've designed a game that is even better than Go and you don't know how to play it because of your pathetic little brain. <laughs> and I'd be like, give me 140 years and I'll be with you. Hang on a minute. <laughs> uh, okay, so not only is AI changing the way we do research, it's also changing the way we communicate that research. And that's what we're going to explore today. Dan and I are going to share two examples of the way in which SciComm is levelling up with the help of artificial intelligence. So first up, is your pie chart really telling a story? Many research teams gather more data than they can ever present and have to make choices about what they prioritise and then how they display that information. And then, of course, you need to be able to communicate the significance of that data to someone else. It might be other people in your team, collaborators, clients or the public. And that's where the concept of data stories comes in. In order to find out how data visualisation can help identify the secrets hidden in big data and the challenges of interpreting modern data sets, I spoke to Mara Pometti, lead data strategist at IBM. Here's what she does. I define and design AI business solutions for uh, IBM's clients uh, by uncovering and revealing new opportunities uh, hidden in the client's uh, data. And I do that uh, by creating and crafting uh, data visual stories that can tell 
and reveal the impact of algorithms and machine learning models on the client's business. Explain to me what the kind of the essence of of data visualization actually is. We can think of data as a tangled of intricate connections and patterns. And it's really by first understanding these connections and these patterns inside the data that we can then extract meaning and insights that can enable us to find new knowledge. And uh, it's by visually creating uh, um, the shape of the data that we can translate this raw material into something that is tangible and that really tells a story. Okay, so imagine a, a standard academic paper where you've got representations, you know, graphs or, or tables, charts of the data that the researchers have gathered. That's not a visualization of data because there's no interpretation there or they have interpreted it. It's just that they're doing it on a different level to, to what you're doing. Yeah, uh, I think uh, they haven't interpreted the data. I mean, tables and graphs and charts, uh, to me, it's only the beginning of what you can do with data. But there is a human component that can be given by the designer, the data vids designer in this case, that can really return new meaning to this data, can really unveil, uncover through um, a specific uh, design choice, new nuances, new meaning uh, that with just a table or a, a simple chart, you don't really understand. What I say to my colleagues usually is that uh, data visualization, it's never the point. Data visualization, it's only a mean that we use to understand what the data tells us and what are the insights that we can extract from the data. But if we don't use data stories, if we don't use data design to interpret the data and visualize the data together in an overarching story, we will always fail to communicate the data insights. So is that where it becomes kind of more art than science? Are you, are you being creative? How do you decide what story it is that you want to tell and therefore the stories, I guess, that you're not telling? So it's not uh, art, even though there is a, a creative component in the process, yes. But uh, it's just uh, a new way to me to see and represent uh, the data and going beyond uh, the mainstream boundaries uh, that usually we impose ourselves because we can do more. And especially today, data, it's not just a spreadsheet. Today, data, it's everything. It's everywhere. Uh, It's a representation of our digital lives. And so it's even more important and crucial today how we understand new ways to communicate data so that the data is thoroughly understood by people and we do not mislead people with our representations. Oh, yes. Because in in that data is a means of shaping the future as well, I guess. 
definitely. Yes, you got the point, especially today when we talk about so much about artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, models. Uh, it's about exactly predictions and the future. And uh, it's even uh, more important for that reason to really find the right way to engage people with our representations by engaging them emotionally. Do you sometimes come across the attitude where people say, yes, of course, we're going to get, you know, top writers to write the copy because we want to tell a story that's compelling and engaging. But the data, that's just numbers. We want just the pure hard data. Stop messing about with it, Mara. Yes, uh, it happens every time because, you know, um, we as humans beings, I, I guess, we, we fear change uh, the most of the time. So presenting uh, a new way to deal with data, representing them, it could be scary sometimes uh, because maybe people feel like they are losing control over the, the content, over the topic. Um, so it's really a matter, I believe, of data literacy also in general in life. Um, I see, unfortunately, too little data literacy still in the world. I mean, at the point where uh, artificial intelligence is so pervasive in our lives, I can't really understand uh, how the level of data literacy is still so low. I guess that's data literacy within business organizations, within government and public bodies, as well as to some extent, within academia itself, between researchers? It's um, complicated matters because uh, to enhance data literacy, you need a new perspective uh, on the data and you need especially multidisciplinary teams. So you can't think to bring change if you still rely on the same experts that you used to rely in the past. How much has data changed in the last few decades? I mean, we've, we've talked briefly about um, AI, machine learning, you know, the, the concept of big data has been with us for a while. How much is that changing what you do? And I guess what science communicators in all different fields should be thinking about? One decade ago, um, there was this big buzzword about big data. And we were all interested in the un analyzing, understanding this big data. But now if we think about that, we went uh, already beyond that level now. Now this big data is fueling uh, machine and algorithms. And so we are not interested anymore in uh, um, controlling and analyzing the big data, but we are interested in how we use it to better have control over the futures, to better get insights that we as human beings can't uh, really see inside the data because they are too big, too spread too difficult to control. And so we need algorithms to do that, to classify uh, objects, uh, to create cluster, to make predictions, to make decisions. We need uh, machine learning. And so from humans trying to govern data, now we have humans questioning how better use this data in novel ways to create new solutions that can help us uh, 
And for that reason, uh, it would be even more important uh, to explain uh, those uh, analytics and complex ideas and concepts to people who are not experts. Yeah, I guess because otherwise, you know, you've got this black box and you've got all this data with its, I guess, a degree of error with the the biases of of whatever, you know, data is coming in. And then it turns out an output. It says, this is what you should do, or this person, you know, should be arrested or whatever the use of the data is. It makes people scared, doesn't it? Because you can't see inside the black box. Someone's programmed it, someone's decided, but now the machine's deciding for us. We want people to be able to trust those uh, engines, those tools, those applications. Uh, we, as I said, we need to connect to people, especially the non-experts, to understand this black box and why they got that output for, from the, the algorithm. Because what's the point of research? What's the point of making all these advancements in science and technology if we can't share with people and we can't communicate that with people? Data literacy, that's the key to, to success in the future, I guess. Yeah, and we sh- we need more of that, I guess, in our education programs, uh, in schools. Uh, I would like at some point in the future really seeing uh, math classes taught uh, through code um, to make uh, teenagers in high school understanding why they need math, why math is behind everything, in their daily life, behind their TikTok algorithm, behind uh, um, their Netflix, uh, uh, behind everything. I will start with really basic examples and make you understand why they have to study functions in math classes in, in high school. TikTok is maths. There you go. It's Heard it math. here first. It's, <laughs> it's math. math. It's not dancing only. It's math behind it. Yes. <laughs> that was an interview with Mara Palmetti, who created and built the toy robot Scumbot, which features four different challenges and a percentage of the proceeds of each sale will be going to the Sakits <laughs> Foundation. Which is not true. <laughs> just, just for the record. <laughs> She has not created a toy, as far as I know. um, Angel wasn't listening to the interview, was she? No, I don't think so. But never mind, I was. And I'm sure lots (laughs) of other people are as well. That was an interview with Mara Pometti, lead data strategist at IBM. (laughs) I, I, I was really struck by how passionate Mara was about the importance of data literacy mm. on, a, on a kind of much broader scale. So it can't just be specialists who understand coding and the rest of us just watch Netflix. Yeah. We all need to be engaged with this new way of communicating because that's literally what it is. It's going to shape our world. It's going to shape our options. But we need to be kind of stakeholders in that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, data literacy is so important anyway, generally, isn't it? You know, like if we see graphs, you know, in in the media, we need to understand what that graph is telling us as well. So it isn't just about sort of looking at the data. It's sort of drawing conclusions from that as well. And and the more people who are able to do that, the better I think it is. Or or if you're you're the researcher presenting your data, you need to kind of know the ways in which you can be honest about this is what we've done with this data in order to be able to present it to you 
and be able to be speaking a shared language with the audience. Yeah, it's a really important point we heard as well around artificial intelligence working with us. It's sort of helping us, isn't it? It it enhances our work. It doesn't just replace what we're doing. It's, It's trying to make our work better. So it's the sort of that HI and AI that human intelligence, artificial intelligence working together, not An against... interface. Yes. Okay, now there's also evidence all around us that artificial intelligence has an important role to play in the field of journalism too. So things like creating article summaries, generating ideas and proposals, analysing data to find interesting stories... And this is a role that's actually increasing with every passing year. And it's a real area of interest for our next guest, Professor Charlie Beckett from the Department of Media and Communications at London School of Economics. He's also leading a project called Journalism AI. This is what it's all about. Yeah, well, it started a couple of years ago. We did a big survey, basically, of what newsrooms around the world are doing with artificial intelligence, you know, that kind of collection of technologies, machine learning, automation, all that stuff. And the idea was to find out, if you like, the state of play. But just as importantly, we were talking about what they expected from it in the future, Mm -hmm. and the kind of challenges and opportunities and how it was changing the way they were working. And there was just a fascinating set of outcomes from it. This is clearly something that's starting to have some kind of impact. And it's got a lot of potential but there were huge challenges. One big area was around knowledge. People just didn't feel that they knew enough about these technologies. Mm. Uh, So we responded by then creating a bunch of online courses, which were very much aimed at not teaching you the tech, but teaching you more from a journalism point of view, how you might approach these technologies. The other big gap was the idea of kind of inequalities, that the news industry is pretty small, individual publications are pretty tiny compared to, you know, a big pharmaceutical company trying to use AI, for example. Yeah. Um, So we put together this collab challenge where we brought five teams of journalists from different news organizations, you know, different countries, different backgrounds, and they worked together on specific challenges. So they varied from very kind of gritty ones like content recommendation or how to reduce reader churn to perhaps more ethical ones, one looking at how you can use AI to counter bias in the newsroom. And Mm. what was stunning about this, apart from the wealth of prototypes and reflections that they produced, what was the key message for us was this idea of collaboration, Um, something that's perhaps familiar more to data scientists or people working in tech startups, Mm. that kind of thing, but certainly not something that journalists are used to. You know, they're kind of cutthroat competitive, Mm. aren't they? But they really benefited from learning from other people's expertise and experience. The worst myth around AI and journalism is this idea of the robots. The robots are coming. They're going to write all the stories and present the news and they're going to take all your jobs. I mean, that is so uh, misleading. Instead, these technologies are going to augment what the journalist does. Most of the stuff they do is relatively boring. You know, it's the kind of stuff (laughs) you wouldn't want to do yourself or that you can't do yourself, things at scale, for example. So, you know, it really opened up just sort of all sorts of questions about the future of journalism for me. Yeah, really interesting. And it's funny, isn't it? Because in a way, 
AI has been with us a lot, you know, not just the sort of the data scientists and stuff, but, you know, Amazon recommending adverts to you or, you know, your thermostat adjusting its temperature to save you money. That's all AI. So it's something that really we should be getting used to now, you know, Siri, Google, Alexa, things like that. Do you still think that people, including journalists, find the sort of AI machine learning is still big and scary? Yeah, and you're absolutely right, first of all, on the fact that it's been around. It depends how you define it. But, I mean, there is no AI. Let's start there in the sense there's no pure kind of godlike machine Mm. that can think like a human. But if you think about it in terms of, you know, data, and if you think about it in terms of algorithms, well, what is search? Search is a kind of AI. And that's, that's been a massive asset. You think how search has transformed all our lives. And certainly in my field, the kind of journalism field, it's increasingly becoming apparent, this is the kind of third wave. We went online 20 years ago, perhaps 10 years ago, we got into social media. Well, now there's this other thing. And I think you put your finger on it, that it's a bit scary, because you're not quite sure how it works. Mm. You know, you're not quite sure how you can edit it. You know, how do you edit an algorithm? How do you make sure that it's not screwing up and that it's doing the things you you want to do? Yeah. And the answer to that is you need to find someone who knows about algorithms (laughs) who can help you, (laughs) you, but but who will work with you. Again, that collaboration word. How do we know that we're getting the the sort of the QA, the the quality control side right? So so I'm a researcher myself Mm. and I also review journals and I'd love to have artificial intelligence, machine learning, sort of expedite that process of communicating. So whether that's reviewing because it takes quite a lot of your time as a reviewer or as someone who's, you know, waiting for your paper to be accepted and it takes weeks, sometimes months and months, AI could maybe do that in milliseconds and it could remove human bias to publishing, which we still know exists now as well. But do we then automate a process that determines what we as humans would fundamentally value as good science? So I think you're right, say, uh, when you said, um, can I expedite? It might help in a process. It won't replace what a human does. Mm. The key thing about journalism, really, when you buy journalism or read journalism, you're buying judgment. The same with, you know, academic reviews. You're buying the judgment of the academic. But then you make a really good point, which is, that, of course, humans have biases. We used to complain about those for Mm. decades and decades, and now we're suddenly (laughs) complaining about the algorithms. Some of the interesting work that we did was looking at how perhaps the machine, if you like, can act as a kind of reviewing or corrective mechanism, because the only bias the machine has is the bias that the programmer put Mm. in, so you can change that. And I think that's a really interesting aspect, because I'm really conscious of how journalism is incredibly biased. I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily, but that journalists have to say, that's a story. This other thing isn't. This is important. This is how we should cover it. This is the significance of this. Mm. And so I think it's useful, for example, that you can use AI to have a kind of counter check to that, where what really interests the audience as opposed to you, for example. And then though, it's a kind of feedback loop. So for example, Swedish radio started using uh, machine learning automation to identify stories for their local station news networks. And the way they did it was they obviously programmed the thing. It started coming up with running orders and suggesting stories for those outlets. But then Mm. they were reviewed by editors. 
And what was fascinating was the human editors, on the one hand, sometimes said, yeah, the machine, we don't think it's right. But quite often they were saying, well, that's actually quite interesting. We didn't realize that was going on. So I think, I'm not saying the machine is our friend, but it's kind of like, a, it, is, it is a relationship. It's not, you know, I always say it's a little bit like a car. You need to know roughly how it works. But the most important thing is you need to know where you're going. Do you think then as a journalist or, or you know, someone studying maybe at university or college, do we need their skills to change in order to be a, a journalist of the future? Newsrooms are already, you, know, can, you, you are now seeing new job titles, you know, kind of audience data editor, algorithm <laughs> editor, those kind of things. And they may be, it's fascinating, the different career paths. They may have come from a data science or computing background, mm. or indeed they may just be journalists who have upped their skill levels. But certainly they now have to work in a more integrated way. The old day of having the IT department or the online department down a dingy, dark corridor at the far <laughs> end of the news building, that has gone. We are ever increasing, the information is ever increasingly going to be data-driven, algorithmically powered. That's the world we live in. Mm. And journalism has to be similarly structured to reflect that. Yeah. And from my point of view, that can only help if you're trying to communicate science as a, as a journalist, because you need the data, you need the facts. But we know through lots of experience that sometimes that isn't enough for people. Yeah. So is it changing science communication, do we think? Yeah. Well, I think there's a fantastic opportunity here for both science journalists, but also scientists who want to communicate. Firstly, there's this idea we need to have much more expertise looking at AI to see how it works and how it changes things. Mm. But also, I think there's a real opportunity for people with expertise. It's going to be so in demand, people who actually have that data, who understand how these systems work in terms of in the real world. You know, and that could be anything from understanding migration, understanding the pandemic. The pandemic is an absolute, you know, amazing case study yeah. of how science communication has become more important and how indeed AI can help with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's think about some blue sky thinking for science communication then. What is, from your point of view, the, the most wild and amazing thing that AI could do for, for science communication? <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> well, in some ways, I think I, I, I resist your question in the sense that I think the, the danger of the blue skies thinking is you end up in a kind of do androids dream in colour type scenarios where this it's going to be somehow take us to a completely different world. When I think about communicating science, I think the idea that AI can help gather data, but data, as you know, is in some sense quite a reductionist thing. If you can only measure the things that you can reduce to a binary code, mm. then are you really capturing the whole of, you know, what it is to be human or to be social? But certainly, I think it's it can help us, you know, understand relationships, you know, help us understand trends and we live in such a complex world it's a bit theoretical but i think this idea of structured journalism this idea that journalism has to combine the old-fashioned one which i said was about stories and storytelling mm. and people and incidents but trying to understand the context frankly of this and there is a huge actual public demand for this 
Mm. People keep saying, okay, I know that's happened. What does it mean? Where's it going? (laughs) What's the difference? Why are we in this world? You know, why are we in this world that's not the same as it was a few years ago? Mm. You know, I think one of the the, the sort of key challenges, and I I would put, I'm biased because I'm a journalist, but I would put journalism at the heart of this, is trying to make that complexity and uncertainty into something that's more relatable. That was Professor Charlie Beckett from the London School of Economics. So, Marianne, what did you think? I thought Charlie's point about the importance of collaboration, that you don't necessarily need to be a coding specialist, but you need to understand it enough to be able to have a conversation with someone who really does. I think that that was really important. Yeah, definitely. I really like it that, that, you know, the IT department isn't down that dark corridor anymore because <laughs> that's so true, isn't it? You know, it's, it's integrated, like Charlie says, into newsrooms, but actually it's sort of integrated into, into all of our work now. Absolutely. And, and the idea that it is a, a tool that we are in control of so we can use it to challenge bias, to identify um, trends that we might otherwise accept as as a given or not even notice because we've got our own set of you know human bias you know we can be mindful of ensuring that we don't program that into the machine I really liked what Charlie said as well about how there's no one AI as well because Mm. it's so true but but we tend to sort of go there's this one thing it's got a united conscious and it you know it's it's gonna take over the the humans but there isn't any one AI is there no There's lots of AIs that are going to take over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Marianne. I know. All right. I'm I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. Grudgingly, (laughs) grudgingly dragging me into the 21st century. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of This Study Shows. We hope that it's helped you imagine the exciting future of science communication with the help of our robot friends. We should say goodbye to our co-host, shall we? Angel. Yeah, let's do it. Bye, Angel. Goodbye. (laughs) Join us next week for a special collaboration episode with Earth Optimism, a fantastic organisation that's dedicated to spreading positive stories about conservation, success and climate science. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email thisstudyshows at wiley.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Mariana Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.